Hello and welcome to another chapter of the Jane Eyre Public Access Read Along with Womance. I'm your odd chapter reader, Morgan. I'm your even chapter reader, Isabeau. In case you don't know, we also have a regular old podcast in this very same feed called Womance, where we read a romance novel and discuss and sometimes have wonuses. But that's not what you're here for. Just check it out if you haven't. <laughs> but you're here for the Jane Eyre read-along. So this week is chapter 20, which means Isabeau is going to be reading for us. I am. And since it's been a week or 10 seconds or however long it's been for you, dear listener, Morgan, would you give us a brief recap of what happened in chapter 19? Yeah, let's do the like weird psychological <laughs> test of like, what does Morgan remember? <laughs> so... <laughs> In chapter 19, a mysterious woman, fortune teller, comes to the house and insists on reading everybody's fortunes before leaving. And then she (laughs) reads Blanche's fortune and Blanche is upset, reads everybody's fortune. They seem to like have a really good time with it. And then finally, Jane is pressed into going and having her fortune read. And she walks into the room and realizes that she's never seen the fortune teller and Mr. (laughs) Rochester in the same room at the same time. So dressed as a wizened old fortune teller, Mr. Rochester talks about his desire for her physicality, I believe. He kind of describes her physical beauty and tries to suss out how she feels about him through this like very weird situation. And then Jane learns that Rochester is super freaked out by the handsome stranger who has come to visit. Uh, And he has all these questions like, how does everybody seem to feel about this guy? What are they talking about? And Jane is like absolutely his narc, absolutely his snitch. And she's like goes into the room to like read the room and then report back out. But like everybody's just having a good time. So Rochester is super relieved and then decides he wants to isolate this stranger pretty much. And Jane's like, okay, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That seems cool. That sounds cool. I just kneeled in front of you and you touched my face or something. So it was a very erotic scene bookended by two like baffling moments. And that is where we lay our scene for chapter 20. That was perfect. Thank you. I had forgotten to draw my curtain, which I usually did, and also to let down my window blind. The consequence was that when the moon, which was full and bright, for the night was fine, came in her course to that space in the sky opposite my casement and looked in at me through the unveiled panes, her glorious gaze roused me. Awakening in the dead of night, I opened my eyes on her disc, silver white and crystal clear. It was beautiful, but too solemn. I half froze and stretched my arm to draw the curtain. Good God, what a cry! The night, its silence, its rest was rent in twain by a savage, a sharp, a shrilly sound that ran from the end to end of Thornfield Hall. My pulse stopped, my heart stood still, my stretched arm was paralyzed, the cry died and was not renewed. Indeed, whatever being uttered that fearful shriek could not soon repeat it. Not the widest winged condor on the Andes could twice in succession send out such a yell from the cloud shrouding his airy. The thing delivering such an utterance must rest ere it could repeat the effort. 
came out of the third story, for it passed overhead. An overhead yes in the room just above my chamber ceiling, I now heard a struggle. A deadly wind it seemed for the noise, and a half-smothered voice shouted, Help! 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 Three times rapidly. Will no one come? It cried. And then, while the staggering and stamping went on wildly, I distinguished through the plank and plaster, Rochester! Rochester! For God's sake, come! Chamber door opened. Someone ran or rushed along the gallery. Another step stamped on the flooring above, and something fell, and there was silence. I had put on some clothes. The horror shook all my limbs. I issued from my apartment. The sleepers were all roused. Ejaculations, terrified murmurs, sounded in every room, door after door unclosed. One looked out at another, looked out, the gallery filled. Gentlemen and ladies alike had quitted their beds and, oh, what is it? Who's hurt? What has happened? Fetch a light! Is it a fire? Are there robbers? Where shall we run? Was demanded confusedly on all hands. But for the moonlight, they would have been in complete darkness. They ran to and fro. They crowded together. Some sobbed. Some stumbled. The confusion was intrixable. Where the devil's Rochester? cried Colonel Dent. I cannot find him in his bed. Here, here, was shouted in return. Be composed, all of you. I'm coming. And the door at the end of the gallery opened, and Mr. Rochester advanced with a candle. He had just descended from the upper story. One of the ladies ran to him directly. She seized his arm. It was Miss Ingram. What awful event has taken place, said she. Speak, let us know the worst at once. But don't pull me down or strangle me, he replied, for the Mrs. Ashtons were clinging about him. Now, and the two dowagers in vast white wrappers were bearing down on him like ships in full sail. All right, all right, he cried. It's a mere rehearsal of much ado about nothing. Ladies, keep off, or I shall wax dangerous. And dangerous he looked. Black eyes darted sparks, calming himself by an effort, he added. A servant has had a nightmare. That is all. She's an excitable, nervous person. She construed her dream into an apparition or something of that sort, no doubt, and has taken a fit with fright. Now then, I must see you all back into your rooms, for till the house is settled, she cannot be looked after. Gentlemen, have the goodness to set the ladies the example. Miss Ingram, I am sure you will not fail in invincing superiority to idle terrors. Amy, Louisa, return to your nest like a pair of doves as you are. Madams, to the dowagers, you will take cold to a dead certainty if you stay in this chill gallery any longer. And so, by dint of alternate coaxing and commanding, he contrived to get them all once more enclosed in their separate dormitories. I did not wait to be ordered back to mine, but retreated unnoticed, as unnoticed I had left it. Not, however, to go to bed. On the contrary, I began and dressed myself carefully. The sounds I had heard after the scream and the words that had been uttered had probably been heard only by me, for they proceeded from the room above mine, but they assured me that it wasn't a servant's dream, which had thus struck horror through the house, and that the explanation Mr. Rochester had given was merely an invention framed to pacify his guests. I dressed, then, to be ready for emergencies. When dressed, I sat a long time by the window looking out over the silent grounds and silvered fields and waiting for I knew not what. It seemed to me that some event must follow the strange cry, struggle, and call. No, stillness returned. Each murmur and movement ceased gradually, and in about an hour Thornfield Hall was again as hushed as the desert. It seemed that sleep and night had resumed their empire. Meantime, the moon declined. She was about to set. Not liking to sit in the cold and darkness, I thought I would lie down on my bed, dressed as I was. I left the window and moved with little noise across the carpet. As I stooped to take off my shoes, a cautious hand tapped low at the door. Am I wanted? I asked. Boy, howdy, that question has more than one meaning. Are you up? Asked the voice I expected to hear. Viz, my masters. Yes, sir. Undressed? Yes. 
Come out then, quietly. I obeyed. Mr. Rochester stood in the gallery holding a light. I want you, he said. Come this way. Take your time and make no noise. My slippers were thin. I would walk the matted floor as softly as a cat. Glided up the gallery and up the stairs and stopped in the dark, low corridor, the fateful third story. I had followed and stood at his side. You have a sponge in your room, he asked in a whisper. Yes, sir. Have you any salts? Volatile salts? Yes. Go back and fetch both. I returned, sought the sponge and the washstand, the salts in my drawer, and once retraced my steps. He still waited. He held a key in his hand. Approaching one of the small black doors, he put it in the lock. He paused and addressed me again. You don't turn sick at the sight of blood. I think I shall not. I have never been tried yet. I felt a thrill while I answered him, but no coldness, no faintness. Just give me your hand, he said. It will not do to risk a fainting fit. Put my fingers into his. Warm and steady was his remark, and turned to the key and opened the door. I saw a room I remember to have seen before the day Mrs. Fairfax showed me over the house. It was hung with tapestry, but the tapestry was now looped up in one part, and there was a door apparent, which had been concealed. This door was open. A light shone out of the room within. I heard thence a snarling, snatching sound, almost like a dog quarreling. Mr. Rochester, putting down his candle, said to me, Wait a minute, and went forward to the inner apartment. A shout of laughter greeted his entrance, noisy at first, and terminating Grace Poole's own goblin. Ha ha! She then was there. Made some sort of arrangement without speaking. Though I heard low voices address him. He came out and closed the door behind him. Here, Jane, he said, and I walked round to the other side of the large bed, which, with its drawn curtains, concealed a considerable portion of the chamber. An easy chair was near the bed head. A man sat in it, dressed with the exception of his coat. He was still. His head leant back. His eyes were closed. Mr. Rochester held the candle over him. I recognized in his pale and seemingly lifeless face the stranger Mason. I saw too that his linen on one side and one arm was almost soaked in blood. Hold the candle, said Mr. Rochester, and I took it. He fetched a basin of water and washstand. Hold that, he said. I obeyed. He took the sponge, dipped it in, and moistened the corpse-like face. He asked for my smelling bottle, applied it to the nostrils. Mr. Mason shortly unclosed his eyes. He groaned. Mr. Rochester opened the shirt of the wounded man, whose arm and shoulder were bandaged. He sponged away the blood trickling fast down. Is there immediate danger? murmured Mr. Mason. No. A mere scratch. Don't be so overcome, man. Bear up. I'll fetch a surgeon for you now myself. You'll be able to be removed by morning. I hope. Jane, he continued. Sir? I shall have to leave you in this room with this gentleman for an hour, or perhaps two hours. You will sponge the blood as I do when it returns. If he feels faint, you will put the glass of water on that stand to his lips and your salts to his nose. You will not speak to him on any pretext. And Richard... It will be at the peril of your life if you speak to her. Open your lips, agitate yourself, and I'll not answer for the consequences. Again, the poor man groaned. He looked as if he dared not move. Fear, either of death or something else, appeared almost to paralyze him. Mr. Rochester put the now bloody sponge into my hand, and I proceeded to use it as he had done. Just bloody sponge. It's just a gross idea, isn't it? It is. This is a very gross and corporeal scene also he calls him richard which feels like it felt so mean for some reason (laughs) it does feel really mean he's hurt i immediately jumped to his defense he is grievously injured like and very cute poor pale and groaning let's never forget how cute he is (laughs) he watched me a second then saying remember no conversation he left the room I experienced a strange feeling as the key grated in the lock and the sound of his retreating steps ceased to be heard. Here then I was in the third story, 
Fastened into one of its mystic cells, night round me, a pale and bloody spectacle under my eyes and hands, a murderess hardly separated me by a single door. Yes, that was appalling. The rest I could bear. But I shuddered at the thought of Grace Poole bursting out upon me. She's so unquestioning. But like at this point, I'm like, I don't know if it's necessarily her confidence in Rochester so much as it is her confidence in herself. That could be. As much as she's lived like a sheltered life so she doesn't know when her employer is very blatantly coming on to her in drag, she's not worldly enough to like not be right. She grew up in a place that like, and came into like womanhood in a place where she was teacher's pet, person of authority the whole time. Absolutely. So I think her naivete is everywhere in this experience. And it kind of has to be. I don't think the story works unless she's a little dippy-doo. I like that you call her a dippy-doo because the other part of this is that she's so hungry for approval from authority. Yeah. Like, you know, do you faint at the sight of blood? She's like, I haven't been tried yet. (laughs) Like, I can do it, Mr. Rochester. Put me in the game. (laughs) That's exactly right. I haven't been tried yet. I haven't seen blood yet. That's wild. That's wild. In her childhood, her best friend died in her arms. Yeah. She, I mean, she's pretty tough. I, I kind of regret saying she's dippy but there's something there, you know? It feels like very trite and small to be like, well, she's book smart, but not street smart. Because she has had, like, lots of really trying experiences. She has. I think that's what gives her that, like, inner fortitude, but it's weird that she's, like, not consciously aware of it in the same way that, like, we as readers might be. But again, I think, like, what you termed as, like, dippy-doo, like, that eagerness that she has, like, A, because she's in love with Rochester, but B, like, as you said so correctly, like, she's always been knowledgeable, she's always been competent, she's always been teacher's pet, like, there's this real desire to maintain that about herself. Oh, Jane. I must keep to my post, however. I must watch this ghastly countenance. Like, it's so clear now. She's a little bit of a bootlicker. A little bit, yeah, for sure. I must watch this ghastly countenance, these blue, still lips forbidden to unclose, these eyes now shut, now opening, now wandering through the room, now fixing on me and ever glazed with the dullness of horror. I must dip my hand again and again in the basin of blood and water and wipe away the trickling gore. I must see the light, the unsnuffed candle wane on my employment, the shadows darken on the wrought antique tapestry round me, and grow black under the hangings of the vast old bed, and quiver strangely over the doors of the great cabinet, opposite whose front divided into twelve panels bore in grim design the heads of the twelve apostles, each enclosed in its separate panel as in a frame, while above them at the top rose an ebon crucifix and a dying Christ. Hello. (laughs) Also shades of the red room are definitely present in this room. According, as the shifting obscurity and flickering gleam hovered here or glanced there, it was now the bearded physician Luke that bent his brow, now St. John, long hair that waved, and anon the devilish face of Judas that grew out of the panel and seemed gathering life and threatening a revelation of the arch-traitor of Satan himself in his subordinate form. Amidst all this, I had to listen as well as watch, to listen for the movements of the wild beast or the fiend 
in yonder side den. But since Mr. Rochester's visit, it seems spellbound. All the night I heard but three sounds at three long intervals. A step creak, a momentary renewal of the snarling canine noise, and a deep human groan. Then my thoughts worried me. What crime was this that lived incarnate in this sequestered mansion, and could neither be expelled nor subdued by the owner? What mystery that broke out now in fire and now in blood at the deadest hours of night? What creature was it that masked in an ordinary woman's face and shape uttered the voice now of a mocking demon and anon of a carrion-seeking bird of prey? And this man I bent over, this commonplace, quiet stranger, how had he become involved in the web of horror? And why had the fury flown at him? What made him seek this quarter of the house an untimely season when he should have been asleep in bed i had heard mr rochester assign him an apartment below what brought him here and why now was he so tame under the violence and treachery done him why did he so quietly submit to the concealment mr rochester enforced why did mr rochester enforce this concealment his guest had been outraged his own life on a former occasion had been hideously plotted against and both attempts he smothered in secrecy and sunk in a Lastly, I saw Mr. Mason was submissive to Mr. Rochester, that the impetus, will, of the latter held complete sway over the inertness of the former. The few words which had passed between them assured me of this. It was evident that in their former intercourse, the passive disposition of the one had been habitually influenced by the active energy of the other. Whence, then, had arisen Mr. Rochester's dismay when he heard of Mr. Mason's arrival. Why had the mere name of this unresisting individual, whom his word now sufficed to control like a child, fallen on him a few hours since as a thunderbolt might fall on an oak? Oh, I could not forget his look and his paleness when he whispered, Jane. I've got a blow. I've got a blow, Jane. I could not forget how the arm had trembled which he rested on my shoulder, and it was no light matter which could thus bow the resolute spirit and thrill the vigorous frame of Fairfax Rochester. Is there something that you wanted to say there? Just like the I've got a blow. There's something there. I'm not ready to like form a complete idea, but I come to realize that there's something really telling and really deep in how he describes the situation as I've got a blow. While you're thinking on that, because I think it's right, and I think it's something that I want to continue thinking on, and I'm not sure, like, I'm gonna, like, I want to work this theory through a little bit more, but I think that there's something in I've got a blow, and that he physically experiences the news and the situation physically, which evokes for me the idea of crush, right? Like, why do we call crushes crushes? Like, that's such a physical and brutal word to describe an emotional state. You know, and my mom used to say this to me. She's like, they call them crushes because they hurt, babe, or something like that. You know, some pithy little. And I think that's right that this book describes the landing of emotions physically. Well, like a crush, though, feels like a continuous pressure and a blow feels like a single pressure, right? Come and gone. Absolutely. Yeah. But like to say I have one, like not I have gotten. Yeah, you're right. That's the continuing present. I have got a blow. Yeah. I don't know. There's something there. I'm with you on that. You love talking about crush. You've talked about that etymology a few times. Because I think what's so interesting about describing emotions as physical things that manifest physically feels deeply true to me, but also somehow melodramatic. And like, I don't know where that existence is on that spectrum. And like, my instinct here is that like, Rochester is both entirely earnest when he says, I have got a blow. And also deeply melodramatic. Like, there's something on both sides. 
I also love that his name is Fairfax Rochester. It's very nice. (laughs) That is nice. When will he come? When will he come? I cried inwardly as the night lingered and lingered, as my bleeding patient drooped, moaned, sickened, and neither day nor aid arrived. I had again and again held the water to Mr. Mason's white lips, again and again offered him the stimulating salts. My efforts seemed ineffectual. Either bodily or mentally suffering or loss of blood or all three combined were fast prostrating his strength. He moaned so and looked so weak, wild, and lost. I feared he was dying and I might not even speak to him. The candle wasted at last went out. As it expired, I perceived streaks of gray light edging the window curtains. Dawn then was approaching. Presently, I heard Pilot bark far below out of his distant kennel in the courtyard. Hope revived. Nor was it unwarranted. In five minutes, more than the grating key, the yielding lock warned me my watch was relieved. Could it not have lasted more than two hours? Many a week has seemed shorter. Mr. Rochester entered, and with him the surgeon he had been to fetch. Now, Carter, be on the alert, he said. To this last, I give you but half an hour for dressing the wound, fastening the bandages, getting the patient down the stairs and all. But is he fit to move, sir? No doubt of it. It is nothing serious. He is nervous. His spirits must be kept up. Come, set to work. Mr. Rochester drew back the thick curtain, drew up the Holland blind, let in all the daylight he could, and I was surprised and cheered to see how far dawn had advanced. What rosy streaks were beginning to brighten the east. Then he approached Mason, whom the surgeon was already handling. Now, my good fellow, how are you? He asked. She's done for me, I fear, was the faint reply. Not a whit, courage. This day fortnight, you'll hardly be a pin the worse for it. You've lost a little blood, that's all. Carter, assure him there's no danger. I can do that conscientiously, said Carter, who had now undone the bandages. Only, I wish I could have got here sooner. He would not have bled so much. But how is this? The flesh on the shoulder is torn as well as cut. This wound was not done with a knife. There have been teeth here. She bit me, he murmured. She worried me like a tigress when Rochester got the knife from her. Jesus. You should not have yielded. You should have grappled with her at once, said Mr. Rochester. (laughs) You got the knife out of her. Whoever this mysterious she is, although I feel like the personal relationship between these two people is definitely a factor. So like, if you imagine, he's probably got her by both wrists and then she just leans forward and clamps onto a bleeding wound on his shoulder with her teeth. And Rochester is like, (laughs) you should have just fought her off. We wouldn't be here. If you could just handle yourself. Not only did she clamp on, but like... Like... Like, gnawing. Worrying implies, like, gnawing. Yeah, there's an activity there. Yeah, dude. Oh, my God. You should have grappled with her, (laughs) dum-dum. At once! But under such circumstances, what could one do, returned Mason. Oh, it was frightful, he added, shuddering, and I did not expect it. She looked so quiet at first. I warned you, was his friend's answer. I said, be on your guard when you go near her. Besides, you might have waited till tomorrow and had me with you. It was more folly to attempt the interview tonight and alone. I thought I could have done some good. You thought, you thought. Yes, it makes me impatient to hear you, but however you have suffered, you are likely to suffer enough for not taking my advice, so I'll say no more. Carter, hurry, hurry. The sun will soon rise and I must have him off. Directly, sir. The shoulder is just bandaged. I must look to this other wound in the arm. She has had her teeth there too, I think. She sucked the blood. She said she drained my heart, said Mason. I saw Mr. Rochester shudder, a singularly marked expression of disgust, horror, hatred, warped his countenance almost to distortion. But he only said, 
come, the silent Richard. And never mind her gibberish. Don't repeat it. I wish I could forget it, was the answer. You will when you are out of the country, when you get back to the Spanish town. You may think of her as dead and buried, or rather, you need not think of her at all. Impossible to forget this night. It is not impossible. Have some energy, man. You thought you were as dead as a herring two hours since, and you are alive and talking now. There, Carter has done with you so nearly so. I'll make you decent in a trice. Jane, he turned to me for the first time since his re-entrance. Take this key, go down into my bedroom, and walk straight forward into my dressing room. Open the top drawer of the wardrobe and take out a clean shirt and a neck handkerchief. Bring them here and be nimble. I went, sought the repository he had mentioned, found the articles, named, and returned with them. Now, said he, go to the other side of the bed while I order his toilet. But don't leave the room. You may be wanted again. I retired as directed. Was anybody stirring below when you went down, Jane? inquired Mr. Rochester pleasantly. No, sir. All was very still. We shall get you off cannily, Dick. It will be better, both for your sake and for the poor creature in yonder. I have striven long to avoid exposure, and then I should not like it to come at last. Here, Carter, help him on with his waistcoat. Where did you leave your furred cloak? You can't travel a mile without that. I know, in this damn cold climate. In your room, Jane, run down to Mr. Mason's room, and the one next to mine, and fetch the cloak you will see there. Again I ran, and again returned, wearing an immense mantle lined and edged with fur. Now I have another errand for you, said my untiring master. You must away to my room again. What a mercy you are, shod with velvet, Jane. The clod-hopping messenger would never do at this juncture. You must open the middle drawer of my toilet table and take out a little file and a little glass you will find there. Quick, and like listen to her, like my master like this whole time he's like trying to have a conversation with her and like get her to want him on her own and she's just like whoosh you know but as soon as he starts bossing her around i think she's like much more inclined absolutely because she knows what the expectations are right like this is something that she can just like hop to mm, yeah. and like doesn't have all that messy feelings yeah. and stuff this is a love language she can speak. Yes. I can do what you ask me to do, but I I can't. I don't know what the opposite of that is. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know how to meet you on the emotional plane, but like this stuff I can do. Right, right. I flew thither and back, bringing the desired vessels. That's well. Now, doctor, I shall take the liberty of administering a dose myself on my own responsibility. I got this cordial at Rome of an Italian charlatan, a fellow you would have kicked, Carter. It's not a thing to be used indiscriminately, but it is good upon occasion, as now, for instance. Jane, a little water. He held out the tiny glass, and I half filled it from the water bottle on the washstand. That will do. Now, with the lip of the file. I did so. He measured 12 drops of a crimson liquid and presented it to Mason. Drink, Richard. It will give you the heart you lack for an hour or so. But will it hurt me? Is it inflammatory? Drink, drink, drink. Mr. Mason obeyed because it was evidently useless to resist. He was dressed now. He still looked pale, but he was no longer gory and sullied. Mr. Rochester let him sit three minutes after he had swallowed the liquid, and then he took his arm. Now, I'm sure you can get on your feet, he said. Try. The patient rose. Carter, take him under the shoulder. Be of good cheer, Richard. Step out. That's it. I do feel better, remarked Mr. Mason. I'm sure you do. Yield Valium. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Now, Jane, trip on before us away to the back stairs. Unbolt the side passage door and tell the driver of the post chase you will see in the yard or just outside. For I told him not to drive his rattling wheels over the 
pavement to be ready. We're coming, and Jane, if anyone is about, come to the foot of the stairs and hem. It was by this time half past five, and the sun was on the point of rising, but I found the kitchen still dark and silent. The side passage door was fastened. I opened it with as little noise as possible. All the yard was quiet, but the gates stood wide open, and there was a post-chase with horses, ready harnessed, and a driver seated on the box stationed outside. I approached him and said, the gentlemen were coming. He nodded, and I looked carefully around and listened. The stillness of early morning slumbered everywhere. The curtains were yet drawn over the servants' chamber windows. Little birds were just twittering in the blossom blanched orchard trees. Those boughs drooped like white garlands over the wall, enclosing one side of the yard. The carriage horses stamped from time to time in their closed stables. All else was still. The gentleman now appeared. Mason, supported by Mr. Rochester and the surgeon, seemed to walk with tolerable ease. They assisted him into the chaise. Carter followed. Take care of him, said Mr. Rochester to the latter, and keep him at your house till he's quite well. She'll ride over in a day or two. See how he gets on. Richard, how is it with you? The fresh air revives me, Fairfax. What an intimacy. Yeah, what an in- it really is though, and like poor Richard is just high as a fucking kite. He is indeed. He is not in his right mind. Not at all. I'm worried that he'll come to regret these choices. <laughs> as he most assuredly will. Oh, Dick. Oh, Dicky. Leave the window open on his side, Carter. There is no wind. Goodbye, Dick. Fairfax. Well, what is it? Let her be taken care of. Let her be treated as tenderly as may be. Let her... He stopped and burst into tears. I do my best and have done it and will do it, was the answer. He shut up the chaise door and the vehicle drove away. (laughs) Yet would to God there was an end of all this, added Mr. Rochester as he closed and barred the heavy yard gates. This done, he moved with slow step and abstracted air towards a door in the wall bordering the orchard. I, supposing he had done with me, prepared to return to the house. Again, however, I heard him call, Jane! He'd opened the portal and stood at it, waiting for me. Come, where there is some freshness for a few moments, he said. That house is a mere dungeon. Don't you feel it so? It seems to me a splendid mansion, sir. The glamour of inexperience is over your eyes, he answered. And you see it through a charmed medium. You cannot discern that the gilding is slime and the silk draperies cobwebs. The marble is sordid slate and the polished wood mere refuse chips and scaly bark now here he pointed to the leafy enclosure we had entered all is real sweet and pure he strayed down a walk edged with box with apple trees pear trees cherry trees on one side and a border on the other full of all sorts of old-fashioned flowers stocks sweet williams primroses pansies mingled with southern wood sweet briar and various fragrant herbs they were fresh now as a succession of april showers and gleams followed by a lovely spring morning could make them very evocative of the springtime at Lowood when everyone was dying from the plague. Absolutely, absolutely. There's like this bloom and death, bloom and death parallel. Yeah, and I think this tells us very clearly that something seismic has happened. But remember when she was a little girl at Lowood, she, even with all this death around, she talked about not being conscientious of it. That it was kept hidden from her for the most part. Kept hidden, but I think she also made like a choice. And I I feel like perhaps she's making a similar choice. Yep. She chose to go with him rather than back into the house. Followed by a lovely spring morning could make them. The sun was just entering the dappled east and his light illuminated the wreathed and dewy orchard trees and shone down the quiet walks under them. Jane, will you have a flower? He gathered a half-blown rose, the first of the bush, and offered it to me. 
Thank you, sir. Do you like the sunrise, Jane? That sky with its high and light clouds, which are sure to melt away as the day waxes warm, this placid and balmy atmosphere. I do, very much. You've passed a strange night, Jane. Yes, sir. And it has made you look pale. You were afraid when I left you alone with Mason. I was afraid of someone coming out of the inner room, but I had fastened the door. I had the key in my pocket. I should have been a careless shepherd if I had left a lamb, my pet lamb, so near a wolf's den, unguarded. You were safe. Will Grace Poole live here still, sir? Oh, yes. Don't trouble your head about her. Put the thing out of your thoughts. It's like at every turn he like is weighing the inconvenience of Jane thinking that he's keeping on a murderous <laughs> housekeeper and then like forgetting that he's done that calculus and like... <laughs> totally. He's like, why do you keep bringing up Grace Poole, Jane? It's <laughs> Poole. And it's like, well, you told me she was like, could have almost killed you. And he's like, ah, oh, no. Uh, she's fine. Put it out of your mind. Grace is fine. Yeah. Jane is making choices at this point, I think. Yes, I think so, too. I think it's right to say that. Oh, yes. Don't trouble your head about her. Put the thing out of your thoughts. Yet, it seems to me your life is hardly secure while she stays. Never fear. I will take care of myself. Is the danger you apprehended last night gone by now, sir? I cannot vouch for that till Mason is out of England, nor even then. To live for me, Jane, is to stand on a crater crust which may crack and spew fire any day. But Mr. Mason seems a man easily led. Your influence, sir, is evidently potent with him. He will never set you at defiance or willfully injure you. Oh no, Mason will not defy me, nor knowing it will he hurt me, but unintentionally he might in a moment by one careless word deprive me, if not of life, yet forever of happiness. Tell him to be cautious, sir. Let him know that what you fear and show him how to avert the danger. He laughed sardonically, hastily took my hand, and as hastily threw it from him. This is really good advice, Jane. If I could do that, simpleton, where would the danger be? Annihilated in a moment. Ever since I've known Mason, I've only had to say to him, do that, and the thing has been done. But I cannot give him orders in this case. I cannot say, beware of harming me, Richard, for it is imperative that I should keep him ignorant that harm to me is possible. Now you look puzzled and I will puzzle you farther. You are my... (laughs) Now you look puzzled and I will puzzle you farther. You are my little friend, are you not? At this point, Isabel is visibly (laughs) pausing because she knows I'm gonna like... This is like, by the way, if someone's doing this to you and talking to you this way, like, he knows that Jane has no reference point. He knows that this isn't a conversation. He's just using her as a trash receptacle. Yes, for all of his bullshit. This is why like not journaling can be an act of abuse on your loved ones. Like if he hit would just journal. I agree. Like if he could sort out his own thoughts, he wouldn't in a paragraph go from calling Jane a simpleton when she offered really practical, useful advice to at the end of that paragraph being, you're my little friend, are you not? My little friend. What a prick. Yeah, he's not a good person. Like decidedly not. Well, he's definitely a complicated person. Mm-hmm. You are my little friend, are you not? I like to serve you, sir, <laughs> and to obey you in all that is right. Oh, Jane! <laughs> Jane! She's making choices. She knows that he's being deliberately obtuse. She knows that there's something weird going on with Grace that he is not telling her. There is literally a murderess on the third floor. And she says, I like to serve you, sir, and to obey you in all that is right. Like, she is making a choice. Yeah, but she does have that, like, 
in all that is right. Yes, that is her special clause. Yeah, it's like her special clause. Like, what is it except for like her own like due diligence for her own ethical soundness? And it's so limp-wristed. I mean, it's limp-wristed in this moment, but I think this clause is like actually quite a strong escape hatch for Jane. But at this point, she gives it limp-wristedly because she's choosing to accept his like lies and half-truths. Exactly. But I don't think she's willing. Yeah. Of course she's not. She's not willing to admit that to herself. No, absolutely not. There's no question about that here. I like to serve you, sir, and to obey you in all that is right. Precisely. I see you do. I see genuine contentment in your gait and mien and your eye and face. When you're helping me and pleasing me, working for me and with me in, as you characteristically say, all that is right. Ooh, he even touches on it. For if I bid you do what you thought wrong, there would be no light-footed running, no neat-handed eloquidity, no lively glance and animated complexion. My friend would then turn to me, quiet and pale, and would say, no, sir, that is impossible. I cannot do it because it is wrong and would become immutable as a fixed star well you too have power over me and may injure me yet i dare not show you where i am vulnerable lest faithful and friendly as you are you should transfix me at once if you have no more to fear from mr mason than you have from me sir you are very safe god grant it may be so here jane is an arbor sit down The arbor was an arch in the wall lined with ivy. It contained a rustic seat. Mr. Rochester took it, leaving room, however, for me. But I stood before him. Sit, he said. The bench is long enough for two. You don't hesitate to take a place at my side, do you? Is that wrong, Jane? I answered him by assuming it. To refuse would, I felt have been unwise. Now, my little friend, while the sun drinks the dew, while all the flowers in this old garden awake and expand and the birds fetch their young ones breakfast out of the thorn field and the early bees their first spell of work, I'll put a case to you, which you must endeavor to suppose your own. But first, look at me and tell me you are at ease and not fearing that I err in detaining you or that you err in staying. No, sir, I am content. Well then, Jane, call to aid your fancy. Suppose you were no longer a girl, well-reared and disciplined, but a wild boy, indulged from childhood upwards. Imagine yourself in a remote, foreign land. Uh Uh-oh. Yep. Conceive that you there commit a capital error, no matter of what nature or from what motives, but one whose consequences must follow you through life and taint all your existence. How many people who appeared on MTV Spring Break Cancun have given this same speech in the last 10 years? Or The Bachelor's Love Island or whatever? Yeah. Here's the thing. Once you get in the American Bachelor at this point, like, that's you. Like, you're on the fancy secret Tinder for celebrities. Like, I don't think they have those conversations. I do think someone who's like... (laughs) has appeared on MTV's Spring Break. Do you remember that? I do remember MTV's Spring Break. I remember watching it as a child and being like, wow, I wish I was a teenager right now at this moment in history. Those people did go on to like graduate from college during the recession, which sucks. But I would like to remind them MTV Spring Break was yours. 
In all of its luster and hedonism. Yeah, absolutely. Like the early days of reality TV. That's the thing about like going back and watching the early days of reality television. People are so weirdly honest and there is so much of like, what are we doing here? And so like the stagedness of it, it wasn't there on either side of the camera because the camera didn't know what it was capable of yet. Oh, that's such a good point. The camera did not know what it was capable of. The camera was as shocked as the rest of the audience. Yes, and we all experienced together in that very weird, heady moment between 2006 and 2009. Whereas like now in a recent season of The Bachelorette, this like violent contestant who for some reason was like hoodwinking The Bachelorette the whole time, like other contestants quit and they're like, I think he's dangerous and I'm leaving because I think something really bad will happen. After she finally eliminated him, the producers brought him back because he said he wanted to come back for the rose ceremony. And you almost get the sense that the camera is like, oh shit, I'm going to be fired now. I made a mistake. Like that consciousness is like so hyper articulated now in reality television. All right, this was a real tangent. Let's get back to the book. (laughs) MTV Cancun. (laughs) But whose consequences must follow you through life and taint all your existence. Mind, I don't say a crime. I'm not speaking of shedding blood or any other guilty act which might have the perpetrator amenable to the law. My word is error. The results of what you have done become in time to you utterly insupportable. You take measures to obtain relief, unusual measures, but neither unlawful nor culpable. Still, you are miserable for hope has quitted you, very confines of life. Your sun at noon, darkness in an eclipse, which you feel will not leave it till the time of setting. Bitter and base associations have become the sole food of your memory. You wander here and there seeking rest and exile, happiness and pleasure. I mean in heartless, sensual pleasure, such as dulls intellect and blights feeling. Heart-weary and soul-withered, you come home after years of voluntary banishment. You make a new acquaintance. How or where, no matter, you find in this stranger much of the good and bright qualities which you have sought for 20 years, never before encountered. And they are all fresh and healthy, without soil and without taint. Such society revives, regenerates. You feel better days come back, higher wishes, purer feelings. You desire to recommence your life and to spend what remains to you of days in a way more worthy of an immortal being. To attain this end, you are justified in overleaping an obstacle of custom, a mere conventional impediment which neither your conscience sanctifies nor your judgment approves. He paused for an answer. And what was I to say? Who for some good spirit to suggest a judicious and satisfactory response? Vain aspiration. The west wind whispered in the ivy round me, but no gentle aerial borrowed its breath as a medium of speech. The birds sang in the treetops, and their song, however sweet, was inarticulate. Again, Mr. Rochester propounded his query. Is the wandering and sinful, but now rest-seeking and repentant man justified in daring the world's opinion in order to attach to him forever this gentle, gracious, genial stranger, thereby securing his own peace of mind and regeneration of life? Sir, I answered, a wanderer's repose or a sinner's reformation should never depend on a fellow creature. Men and women die, philosophers falter in wisdom, and Christians in goodness. If any one you know has suffered and erred, let him look higher than his equals for strength to amend and solace to heal. But the instrument! 
The instrument, God, who does the work ordains the instrument. I have myself, I tell it you without parable, been a worldly, dissipated, restless man. I believe I have found the instrument for my care and he paused. The birds went on caroling, the leaves lightly rustling. I almost wondered they did not check their songs and whispers to catch the suspended revelation, but they would have had to wait many minutes, so long was the silence protracted. At last, I looked up at the tardy speaker. He was looking eagerly at me. Little friend, said he, in quite a changed tone, while his face changed too, losing all its softness and gravity and becoming harsh and sarcastic. You have noticed my tender penchant for Miss Ingram. Don't you think if I married her, she would regenerate me with a vengeance? He got up instantly, went quite to the other end of the walk, and when he came back, he was humming a tune. Jane, Jane, said he, stopping before me. You are quite pale with your vigils. Don't you curse me for disturbing your rest? Curse you. No, sir. Shake hands in confirmation of the word. What cold fingers! They were warmer last night when I touched them at the door of the mysterious chamber. Jane, when will you watch with me again? Whenever I can be useful, sir. For instance, the night before I am married? I'm sure I shall not be able to sleep. Will you promise to sit up with me, to bear me company? To you, I can talk of my lovely one. For now, you have seen her and know her. She's a rare one, is she not, Jane? Yes, sir. A strapper. A real strapper, Jane. Big, brown, and buxom. With what hair just so- <laughs> He really is just like all of his worst qualities. And he's doing it. It's just like, God. A strapper, a real strapper, Jane, big, brown, and buxom, with hair just such as the ladies of Carthage must have had. Bless me, there's Denton Lynn in the stables. Go in by the shrubbery through the wicket. As I went one way, he went another, and I heard him in the yard saying cheerily, Mason got the start of you all this morning. He was gone before the sunrise. I rose at four to see him off. End. I mean, like, I don't know what to say beyond just, like, he's not talking about Blanche. No. Although he is talking about her body. And he knows to, like, awaken all of Jane's insecurities. See, I think he's talking about the mysterious laugher, the biter, the tigress. I think that's who he's describing. Ah, the reference to Carthage then makes more sense. Yeah. I think Jane knows, like, Blanche Ingram isn't a strapper. No, she's not. You know, she has dark hair, but she's not big, brown, and buxom. And, like, at this point, I think Jane is definitely willfully ignoring all of the evidence that something else is happening here. And so I guess at the end of this chapter, I'm just disappointed in both of them. I'm disappointed in Jane's inability to ask follow-up questions. Well, she's it's not an inability. It's a disinterest. It's an intentional choice, like a not wanting to know. Yeah. It's not even like a lack of curiosity. No, it's not a lack of curiosity because it seems to me that like Rochester is on the precipice. Like if she pushed like two questions, he'd reveal everything. He wants to tell her. He wants to dump on her all the time. All the time. When she says that whole thing about the birds, like waiting to hear what he would say. It's like, why are you talking about the birds, Jane? Aren't you waiting to hear what he's going to say? He's waiting for you to have a question. And then he's the tardy speaker for not going on. Yeah. I'm like, Jane, he's waiting on you. Yeah. And this is the problem with like plausible deniability. 
right? If you're silent about something, you're basically, what's it called with the cat in the box? Schrodinger's is cat. It a lo- Schrodinger. It's Schrodinger's morality. Like, if I don't say anything and he doesn't say anything, they're in a Schrodinger's morality standoff. Like, he's trying to be like, all the feelings I have for her are ethically okay because technically I haven't been dishonest with her. True. About what's going on. And she's saying everything I'm feeling for him is ethically okay because... All I know is, you know, and it fucking sucks. It's a really hard thing to put your finger on and explain why plausible deniability and like not doing due diligence, why that is not just like ethically ambiguous, why it's a problem. But this chapter really illustrates it. Although I do think the book is sympathetic to both of them and is like, they're in love, you know? I think that's exactly right. This book is really sympathetic to them because of love. And I think this is one of those things that romance novels, but also our culture in general, lets bad people do bad things or good people do bad things. And if they're in love, if that's like the the framework of their actions, it's sympathetic and forgivable. And it's like, well, why is love that kind of blanket? Like, isn't love the thing that should, act, like, especially when you are vulnerable and like you are loving someone, which is being made vulnerable. Like, why wouldn't we expect more? Why wouldn't we want to like, try harder rather than to like enter into plausible deniability like this kind of thing like what will love bear love bears all things and I'm like ooh. well I think that's the thing like pop culture wise at least we see love as an excuse rather than a responsibility or at least that's how it's modeled and maybe it just like appears that way in books all of the time and probably in your adolescence because you're an adolescent I hope that most people would grow out of it but like it causes a lot more problems And, like, the problems that come with, like, taking love on as a responsibility are, like, a lot of, like, long, boring questions and conversations over and over again until you achieve a satisfaction that you couldn't achieve just by having the conversation once, even though it's the same conversation. Like, that's very boring. But, like, lying to each other about a secret that's a human being who bites is far more interesting. I mean, maybe this is a conversation that we can have at a later date. But like, what is the other version of this story? Like, what is the version of this story that takes love as a responsibility rather than an excuse? I would love to have that conversation with you because there's some stuff in this chapter in particular that feels very Jane Austen's persuasion that I'm beginning to work on and I want to think about because I think you're right. Pop culture has this idea about love as tension and gift rather than responsibility. And I think there are other ways to think about it. And something that you cultivated on purpose. That's the thing. Like this is happening on purpose. At any time earlier on, either one of them could have been the bigger person. I don't think the book is like entertaining that possibility, but it's not like that book has edited or corrected for that possibility. Absolutely. Like, and in fact, like labors over the possibility, right? Because of that whole chapter where Jane just self-abuses. Yeah. And attempts to check out and could have effectively checked out. She had an opportunity, you know, she didn't have to sit there and listen to Blanche sing. Yeah, this is a book about choices. Yeah, but isn't doesn't seem totally aware of <laughs> It's aware of the consequence of choices, but yeah, I I think you're right. Like what another framework would look like. Or maybe it's just like forwarding a different 
agency. Like it's aware of all of the agential parts of this, but it's only putting forward this one big bad choice, the sun of the solar system. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. The way that this book operates is both strangely subtle, but also like the choices that it makes around love and tenderness, I find endlessly fascinating. Like that Mason, Richard Mason, has this thing that he says about like treat her tenderly and he says it to Fairfax not Mr. Rochester but earlier he called him Rochester like the moments that Mason deploys Fairfax and the moments that Rochester deploys Richard versus Dick and Mason and I think all of the ways in which like they're referencing their shared past intimacies are both kind of like sadly tragic and deeply evocative like they're calling on other pieces of themselves to each other. And I think this book is really good at it. And like the power is always like, yeah, yeah, shifting because of the secret, because otherwise the power would never shift because Rochester would have all of it. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for letting me read this. This was so fun for me. All right. We'll see if I let you do it again. Okay. Uh, With that, loosen your jeans. But never your airs. Mwah.